a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. And a special shout out to uh, those of us joining us for the first time. That didn't make a lot of sense. Those of you joining us for the first time. Ah. Welcome to uh, the place where we revel in wrong think. I have some great sponsors for the show. Just want to give a quick mention to them. Uh, thank you to AltaBank, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And welcome to Monticello College as a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. You'll be learning more about all of these sponsors throughout the course of the program. If you're joining us for the first time, wondering what's it all about, okay, come on, what's the, what's the deal? Maybe a friend said, hey, you should give this uh, show a listen. You should just give it a try. Here's what, uh, hopefully, I'm going to knock on wood as I say this because I don't always succeed, but hopefully what you're going to find here is timely, credible, and thoughtful commentary on current events. Now, here's what I mean by that. I try to dispense with with the partisan, you know, back and forth, the bumper sticker slogans. I don't like to frame things purely in, you know, partisan political terms. I know there's a lot of that going on. Frankly, I think there's too much of that going on. There's a lot of fear, a lot of anger, and just uh, outright hatred that seems to accompany that that approach. So we take a look at uh, what's happening, but try to do it from a, a different enough vantage point that it actually adds to your understanding of what's going on without a requirement that you have to believe this or you're a bad person. Does that all make sense? Okay, if not, pull up a chair. Let's dive in, and uh, we'll see if it's a good fit. If it's not, I'm not going to be offended. Not everybody wants to hear what uh, you know what what I've got to share. But for people who are seeking something that they can hang their hat on, uh, this may just be what you're looking for. I, I sincerely hope it is. It's look. It's no secret that there is uh, there's a big difference in the number of people who are standing in line for comforting lies versus the people that are standing in line for uh, painful truths. Not very, not very many people really like painful truths, myself included. I'm, I'm not a fan of learning things, even if it's for my own good. If it's if it's a painful truth, it's like oh, that still hurts. But there's a there's a price that we pay both as individuals and as a society when we become comfortable with lies. It threatens our well being. It threatens our happiness. Jeff Minnick, in a recent essay for uh, IntellectualTakeout.org has a very thoughtful take on what happens when we live with lies. And by the way, this isn't so much about pointing fingers as to, you know, this is this person's a liar, that organization's a liar. This is more about why you and I at the individual level should, pre- should place greater value on truth and be willing to do a little bit of extra work to make sure that we're sorting truth from lies and not just, you know, tacitly accepting what anybody tells us because, well, that's easier and more comfortable to do. We're going to talk more about convenience later on this hour. He says, Satan is described as the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44 of the New Testament. Now, Jeff Minnick says, whether we think of old scratch or not, most of us would agree we live in an age of deceit. 
Many citizens have abandoned common sense and reason for theory and wishful concoction, contending that black is white or that 2 plus 2 equals 5, and then demanding the rest of us march in lockstep with them. Some, for example, argue that biological men should be allowed to compete in sports against biological women. Protest that claim on social media or, or any public forum, and you'll be declared a bigot. Now, some of us believe that, uh, some would have us believe, rather, that the presidential election involved little or no fraud and we should just move along. Those who claim to possess proof of that fraud are ignored by the mainstream media and our courts, or they're just dismissed outright as liars and sore losers. Tens of thousands of Americans from across the country gathered in Washington, D.C. on January 6th to protest electoral fraud. The media and some <clears throat> some of our politicians are now labeling them an insurrectionist mob incited to violence led by President Donald Trump. But Jeff Minnick, who actually, by the way, was there, says those of us who heard the president's speech know this is a lie. He says some apparently believe a $27 trillion national debt won't cause our economy and our country to collapse in the future. Now, the current population of the U.S. is roughly 328 million people, which means every American living today from great-grandpa to this morning's newborn owes approximately $82,000. And yet on we go, printing dollars with the same wanton disregard as the proverbial drunken sailor, with the difference being that the sailor wakes in the morning with a hangover and a good case of remorse. Jeff Minnick says experts tell us lockdowns and masks will prevent the spread of COVID. But he says if that's the case, then why is California, with some of the most stringent antivirus measures in the country, leading the way in terms of new infections? He says our governors and mayors allowed our big box stores to remain open during the pandemic but closed fabric stores, beauty salons, restaurants, and countless other smaller businesses. No existing data proves the environments of small stores are more likely to spread the virus, so why are they continually ordered to shutter their doors? And he says, then there's our twisted language. We're hounded by words and phrases like equity, inclusion, whiteness, systemic racism, white fragility, patriarchy, and diversity. These may sound impressive, but... They're as hollow as a drum, meaningless tags employed to signal one's virtue or to attack an opponent. Some believe that women are oppressed. America is a land rife with racial hatred. Males are toxic, and police routinely and indiscriminately shoot people of color. Ask for proof, and you will again be smeared as a bigot, a misogynist, or a fascist. The de-incarceration and defund the police movements should be laughed off by anyone with a brain in their head. But instead, they're gaining traction as ways to fight America's alleged racism and classism. Now, Jeff Minnick says such deceptions come with a price. In the case of the United States, the price is a broken and divided country. In the aftermath of the mayhem at the Capitol, this chasm has only widened, abetted in large part by a biased mainstream media. He says these fabrications and foolish ideas have already damaged our democracy. And if they continue unchecked, they may well destroy it. In Darkness at Noon and the Progressive Mindset, Nicholas Castor shares several thoughts from physician and writer Theodore Dalrymple. Dalrymple, rather. Most startlingly, Dalrymple concluded that political correctness is communist propaganda writ small. He continued, quote, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda 
was not to persuade or convince, but to not nor to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent when they're being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is to cooperate with evil and in some small way to become evil oneself. One standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. End quote. And Jeff Minnick says, perhaps most applicable to our society, Dalrymple included, a society of emasculated liars is easy to control. I think if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and it is intended to. Interesting. Now, those who've listened to me for any length of time know I often will refer to political correctness as cultural Marxism. I think it's an accurate description, and I think that that is correct. I think that uh, Dalrymple, as well as Jeff Minnick, have a solid point here. Force people to acknowledge as reality something that isn't. Two plus two equals five. You force them to say it, humiliate those who would, would beg to differ, and you start to control how people think. Jeff Minnick says, whatever our political views, if we wish to remain healthy, both as individuals and as a society, we must embrace reality and truth rather than blindly accepting the tenets of political correctness, the critical theory agenda, or betrayal by spineless politicians, and the mendacity of our mainstream media. He says it's long past time to stand for truth and facts rather than being sucker-punched by conjecture, deceit, and deliberate obfuscation. Truth can hurt, but he says lies masquerading as truth can kill. Pretty powerful stuff. I'll have a link to this essay in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for January 15th, 2021. When we come back... I'm going to talk a little bit about convenience, and I'm going to just be up front here. I love my convenience as much as the next guy. But there are some unseen costs that come with convenience, and worse, there are those who will use convenience and our desire for convenience against us. Government, I'm looking in your direction. By the way, few things take convenience away from us more efficiently than government, but that's another part of the story. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to my friend John Staples with Alta Bank. If you live within the state of Utah and you're within the sound of my voice and you are either in the market for a new home or maybe you've decided you want to take advantage of very low interest rates while they remain low and refinance your existing mortgage, you need to get a hold of my friend John Staples. He is the guy who can help you. Alta Bank is a very uh, well-equipped and, uh, and credible lender and they have, uh, they have all the reach and all the resources to make it happen for you really, really quickly. But John's the guy you want to talk to. Go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and you'll see the sponsor links down below at the bottom of the notes. Click on Alta Bank. Go talk to John. Tell him thanks for sponsoring this show. 
I get an email in my inbox uh, just about every night from everythingvoluntary.com. I'm not saying you have to do it, but I am going to suggest if you are interested in some really uh, fascinating and informative commentary, go to Everything Voluntary. It's everything-voluntary.com and sign up for the email. It's just a daily update. Skip what you don't like. Uh, you don't read what you do. Brian Kaplan had an excellent essay that landed in my email, my email inbox last night about convenience versus social desirability bias. Now, if you're like me, you're probably not familiar with social desirability bias. But I want you to hear his explanation, and then you'll realize, wow, this, this actually has relevance to all of us, especially the convenience part. Brian Kaplan says convenience has a massive effect on your behavior. You rarely shop in your favorite store, eat in your favorite restaurant, or visit your favorite place. Why not? Because doing so is typically inconvenient. They're too far away or they're not open at the right hour, so you settle for second best or third best or tenth best. You don't usually switch your cell phone company, your streaming service, or your credit card just because a better option comes along. Why not? It's because switching is not convenient. Students even pass up financial aid because they don't feel like filling out the paperwork. Why not? You guessed it. It's because paperwork is inconvenient. But he says in politics, however, almost no one talks about inconvenience. When governments mandate extra privacy or safety or consumer protection, crowds cheer and pundits sing. And from now on, he says, you'll be clicking a few extra boxes a day. From now on, you'll have to stand 10 feet away from the next person at the pharmacy. From now on, you'll have to sign your name and initials 20 times on a mortgage contract. Privately, almost everyone thinks each of these is a pain in the neck. Yet almost no one goes on TV and self-righteously objects, these high-minded ideals are going to be awfully inconvenient. And so Brian Kaplan asks, so what's going on? He says the Panglossian explanation is that there is almost no political resistance to the inconvenience of extra privacy, safety, and consumer protection because these benefits are clearly worth the loss of convenience. Yet that's hard to reconcile with the enormous effect of convenience on our actual behavior. Furthermore, we routinely complain about inconvenience one-on-one or with trusted friends. When people are speaking off the record, he says, I've heard at least a hundred times as many complaints about inconvenience as I've heard about lack of privacy, safety, or consumer protection. And so he asks, how can we explain this chasm between daily life and political rhetoric? He says, by appealing to social desirability bias. Now, maybe this would be a good time to, to give you just the, the quick down and dirty social desirability bias explanation. There's actually a great link within the article itself that, uh, that gives, I think, an excellent, excellent explanation. Social, de- social desirability bias is the tendency of respondents to answer questions in a manner that will be viewed favorably by others. So if you're being quizzed by a pollster, you may answer in a way that makes you look like a good, sensitive, you know, upstanding citizen, even if it's not your true feelings. Topics uh, where socially desirable responding is of special concern would be uh, self-reports of abilities, personality, sexual behavior, drug use, 
This could also apply to things involving personal income and earnings or feelings of low self-worth. Anyway, you get the picture. Back to convenience versus social desirability bias. Here's the quick version. When the truth sounds bad, people respond with lip service, especially when there's a sizable audience. People occasionally voice ugly truths one-on-one or with trusted friends. Normally, however, they sugarcoat. If what sounds good conflicts with what works well, we usually respond with hypocrisy. We say what sounds good, and then we do what works well. In politics, alas, words rule. Brian Kaplan says from the viewpoint of any individual voter, elections are surveys. As a result, demagogues run the world. They gain power by swearing fealty to lofty ideals, not weighing costs and benefits. And when lofty ideals imply serious inconvenience, as they sadly do, the demagogues impose serious inconvenience. He says, why doesn't a rival politician gain power by promising to make convenience great again? Because convenience sounds petty and ignoble. People love convenience. They happily sacrifice other values for convenience, but they don't want to acknowledge this fact or affiliate with those who do. Brian Kaplan says his favorite Dead Kennedys album is called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. The music is great, but he says the message is not. The band heaps scorn on our wicked first world society for placing immense weight on the superficial consumerist value of convenience. But he says the reality, however, is more complicated. Yes, we long for a convenient world. A little inconvenience can ruin your entire date. No one, however, will ever go to the barricades for convenience. In fact, we're ashamed to admit how much convenience matters for our quality of life. Now, the market mercifully sells us the convenience we want without judging us. Government, in contrast, takes us at our word and robs us of precious convenience bit by bit, day by day. I don't know why this one jumped out at me, but maybe it's the recognition that uh, a lot of the problems we're facing right now have to do with convenience. And I'm I'm just going to use the example of, you know, we've seen the the big tech purge, right? And a lot of people being deplatformed or their accounts suspended on social media. And like, well, okay, maybe I've been the guiltiest one of all. I've complained a lot about uh, the the big tech oligarchy that has, has come up because of its partnership with big government. And I have dabbled in other, you know, other platforms, MeWe and Parler, among others. But you know where I find myself going? And again, this is purely out of convenience. Every day I'm checking my Twitter, checking my Facebook. You know, I'm going back to the ones that, that I've complained about. So I guess my point is, look, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. The convenience factor, it's a real thing. Oh, but I've already got those all set up, and I don't want to have to go set up a new profile and, you know, all the rigmarole and then keep track of passwords and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Convenience does make us, uh, you know, slave sometimes to, uh, to routine. But we're entering a very inconvenient phase, maybe of our, our individual lives, certainly of, of our, our nation's history and, and where our culture is headed. And I'm specifically applying this to to people who want to be informed about the world around them. If you go the path of least resistance, in other words, if you just plop down in front of the TV and hit on and, you know, you go to one of the major news networks, I don't care if it's Fox News, I don't care if it's CNN, I don't even care if it's your local news, the chances are you're going to be given a very incomplete picture of what's happening. 
If you want to be informed, you have got to be willing to endure some inconvenience for the sake of um, divining out the truth and, and then sorting out fact from fiction among what uh, whatever it is that you're reading or seeing or hearing. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I've, I'm also somebody who's been trying to put this into practice for quite some time, like at least the last 25 years by my count. It may not be easy, but it's definitely worth it because I, I want to know what the truth is, and I suspect you do as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. One of the things for which I am extremely grateful is the fact that uh, that I have access not just to uh, whatever platform you're listening to right now, but that there is a uh, decentralized way for me to get this message out on a daily basis. I do two hours of show a day. It comes down to about uh, roughly uh, 40 minutes per hour when you take out the commercial breaks. And it is it is a privilege to be able to do this. And there was once upon a time, in fact, for most of my adult life and most of my radio career, that I had one platform from which to do this. And in order to access that platform, I would uh, hire on with, you know, a radio company and uh, would, would, you know, work for them. And I don't mean for this to sound as disrespectful as it's probably going to sound, but I had to please my corporate overlords um, in order to uh, retain access to that platform. Like I said, I don't mean for that to really sound, you know, like, uh, like oh, they were totally taking advantage. Yeah, hopefully it worked well for them and worked well for me. But, you know, there there was that uh, that consideration of, you know, if you don't toe the line, you could always be deplatformed. And and this is something we've seen come up again just in the last few days with uh, Cumulus Media telling its hosts, if you allude to the idea that this election, this last election, is not done or that uh, that the matter is not settled, you know, you need to prepare to separate from this company immediately. And then, of course, we had the big tech purge, which came down last week, in which uh, big tech flexed its muscle in a way that uh, was was deliberately intended to show we are in control, or at least we have power over you. Parlor. I mean, this was the equivalent of uh, this was the equivalent of a high school kid coming onto, you know, the the junior high playground and beating the crap out of a kid <clears throat> in front of everybody to send a message. Yes, Parler was the junior high kid who got the crap beat out of him, and and as far as I know, still is deplatformed. They don't have servers. And I saw a lot of buzz, you know, between between the big tech purge and uh, also between Cumulus's announcement. I saw a lot of buzz among people in the broadcast industry. Well, this, you know, some were saying it's about time. It's about time somebody shut up these irresponsible right wing voices. And you know, some people were very glad to see this. They they don't understand when you cheer as someone else is being fitted for a muzzle. Your turn just hasn't come yet. If, if you think that it's a proper function for others to be fitted with a muzzle because they're saying something that you don't like, you are leaving the door wide open for someone at some point to come slap a clumsy hand across your mouth and prevent you from talking for the very same reason. 
you're going to stand for liberty or if you're going to stand for freedom of speech, you got to stand consistently. And that means you even have to be willing to, to, to stand up for the rights of people with whom you do not agree. But it was funny to see the reaction of some of the people going, well, this is kind of scary, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it could be so easy to be deplatformed. And I reflected on, you know, where I am right now in that uh, I, I'm, my program is being broadcast across multiple platforms. There's at least two dozen different podcast platforms, different networks, that, uh, different apps that are carrying it that are not tied to social media. And I'm not saying this to brag, okay? It's not like, and I have never been richer or more famous in my entire life. No, life is is still a struggle and probably will be for the foreseeable future. But that decentralization shields me in in some respects from that uh, that cancel culture mentality that has been co-opted or at least has been adopted by big tech. And I've had a lot of folks ask me in the last couple of weeks, are you da- are you in danger? Are you uh, are you at risk? And yeah, I, I guess we all are at some ex- to some extent. But if there's something good that came out of the big tech purge over the weekend, it's that it's causing people to evaluate what can we do to make sure that we can can uh, keep our platform viable. I want to share with you some thoughts from Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute. And I consider the Mises Institute one of the most principled voices of free market economics as well as freedom in the world today. They're, they're not political, but they sure help you <clears throat> excuse me, make sense of so much of what's happening within the political world. Jeff Deist says the Mises Institute was born of the build-your-own-platform ethos. He says in the early 1980s, few outlets existed for anyone interested in the Austrian School of Economics or robust libertarian scholarship. Few universities taught Hayek, much less Mises or Rothbard. Libraries and bookstores carried little of interest for serious economists and thinkers in the old liberal tradition. He's talking classical liberal here. Lou Rockwell and others set out to build an institutional home for the Austrian school and to resuscitate Mises as the most important and comprehensive leader of that school. In those early years, the Institute used the platforms at its disposal to get the message out, chiefly in the form of physical mail, book catalogs, conferences, and video cassettes. It wasn't easy, but there were no alternatives. Today, that home exists largely in the digital sphere, centered around Mises.org. Social media and video platforms also play a big role in how they get their content out to millions of people across the world. Jeff Deist says, compared to the analog 1980s, these digital platforms are miracles of innovation and cheap, instantaneous communication. Virtually anyone in the world with electricity and Internet access can read the most important Austrian works, often translated into their native language, anytime at no cost. He says, for many years, however, the calls to control and chill online content have grown louder. And he says, we've monitored those calls and taken proactive and incremental steps to safeguard our our various channels. And today, the environment for free and open communication, the hallmark of liberal societies, is in deep trouble. In recent weeks, companies including Amazon Web Services, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter have removed or banned users ranging from Donald Trump to Ron Paul to left-wing podcasts such as Red Scare. 
Parler, a growing alternative to Twitter, not only lost its ability to offer apps on Android or Apple devices, but even its Amazon web hosting, rendering it completely offline. At this point, the debate over private companies and deplatforming is almost moot. What's needed is action, direction, and innovation by people of goodwill, regardless of political stripe. Yes, many tech companies and social media outlets are bad actors and willing accomplices to the worst state action. Yes, many tech companies have their origins in federal subsidies, and many receive government contracts. Many are virtually instruments of state power or governmentalities, as Professor Michael Rechtenwald terms them. But he says right now, however, what matters is not arguments about censorship or regulation or the First Amendment. What matters is action. And he gives a list, he says, for all of you fans and supporters of the Mises Institute, he wants us to know how the Institute is well positioned to survive purges by platforms and hosts. Now, this isn't, you know, bearing their underbelly. So he says, without giving too much detail, here are the basics. He says, we maintain and own, not rent, internal servers and backup servers while also maintaining storage offshore. We are moving to a very local internet service provider with beefy broadband. We have alternative domain registration providers in place to protect the use of Mises.org. We have hot standby sites in two foreign jurisdictions in case of a denial by our web host. We have all video, audio, and graphic content housed on our backup servers in case of a denial by our cloud provider. We sync and mirror all YouTube videos on alternate platforms, including Odyssey, started by a Mises Institute fan. We registered the, uh, insti- the Mises Institute name with every new or alternative social media possible with the expectation that Facebook and Twitter will remove us eventually. Now, he says, fortunately, in one sense, only about 20% of our site traffic arrives via social media click-through which is not the case for many newer sites. Also, less than half of Mises.org traffic arrives via organic Google search. So he says, while we would hate to lose views if Google disappeared our search results, enough people come to Mises.org directly through their browsers or from subscription emails. He says, we've moved away from using shared internal Google Docs. We've moved toward encrypted email vendors. We keep strict security over our donor database and back it up frequently using internal storage. We've moved our email subscription list to an alternate vendor after reading accounts of MailChimp reviewing user content. And we've taken steps to maintain alternative payment gateways and diversify our banking providers locally, nationally, and internationally. Now, he says none of these steps guarantee anything. But he says we want you to know we take the threat of digital erasure very seriously. And I love this part. We will never water down our message to satisfy censors or maintain a particular platform. Instead, we will work around them. Our radical vision and message will not change. Society can manage itself and organize around property, markets, and civil society rather than centralized monopoly governments. He says, real economics is the key to understanding real social cooperation, but we can't advocate ideas without the channels to disseminate them. And let's hope we never need to come back full circle, back to the analog world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention that... uh, we have some terrific sponsors on this program, including Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I don't know if you have need of commercial insurance. If you have a business, you have need of it, right? But uh, apparently it's it's a complicated thing, or at least it can be. And a lot of business owners, they may, you know, sit there and, and, and go back and forth. Do I have everything I need? Have I, have I dotted every I? Have I crossed every T? If those kind of questions have kept you awake at night, or even if they just sometimes come across your mind and you just think, I'm not sure... I want you to contact my friend Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. There's no obligation here, but they can definitely help walk you through what it is you need to be concerned about, what you need to know, and and make sure that uh, you can sleep soundly at night. You'll find the link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So here's a here's kind of an interesting loaded question for you. What is your reaction when you hear that Elon Musk has now become the richest man in the world. Apparently, his net worth is now more than $185 billion. What's your reaction when you hear that? Is it resentment? Is it anger that a person could attain that kind of wealth when there are so many people struggling to get by? For a lot of people, it is. And if that's your reaction, I'm just going to suggest, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm going to suggest that maybe there's something that you're not seeing. Saw an excellent article from Danielle Butcher. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. And she explains why we need more pioneers like Musk, not fewer of them. She says it's no secret that entrepreneur and engineer Elon Musk is something of a cultural icon. With the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, the founder of the Boring Company, and co founder of another handful of companies among his many titles. Now he has one more proverbial feather to stick in his cap. Richest man in the world, briefly. (laughs) Surpassing Amazon giant Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk achieved this status last week, hitting an estimated net worth of more than $185 billion. Now this achievement, in and of itself, is an enormous feat. But what's more impressive is the way in which he built this fortune. Many progressives are quick to criticize people who've attained billionaire status, suggesting that no one person should have an opportunity to accumulate such capital while others live below the poverty line. But what's often forgotten in these discussions, however, is the good these entrepreneurs have created for others and for society at large. So while a popular narrative may be that Musk achieved success by exploiting others, there seems to be a deep disconnect between this theory and reality. Alongside his personal wealth, Musk has created countless jobs, contributed millions of dollars to deserving charities, and spearheaded technological and engineering feats that once seemed impossible. His important breakthroughs have made way for progress both within and outside of his own companies. And so Danielle Butcher says, rather than condemning Musk, we should be examining his path to prosperity. While it's true Tesla received significant government subsidies, There are lessons to be learned here, and chief among those lessons is that of the power in risks. After all, if the government is going to get involved in private industry at all, it should be by providing incentives for innovation, rather than by punishing or over-regulating promising entrepreneurs. So here's a little bit of the timeline to help give you some perspective. In 2003, when electric vehicles were largely considered a niche market, 
Elon Musk founded Tesla, the famed electric car company. With its unconventional marketing strategy and luxury appeal, Tesla contributed significantly to the popularization of electric vehicles in the 21st century. Since Tesla's founding, the production of electric vehicles themselves, as well as EV infrastructure, has grown astronomically. Since 2003, the U.S. has surpassed 1 million sales of EVs. And infrastructure has only continued to expand. Tesla paved the way for other EV manufacturers to debut in the modern market. The industry's growth has surpassed initial expectations and with that accelerated our path to a cleaner future. Now Musk, of course, had no way of knowing this 17 years ago when he took a risk and founded Tesla. Entrepreneurs often precede market trends with their products, which is the beauty of a free market. Because of Tesla and other similar EV companies, consumers were given a new, more sustainable choice. And Danielle Butcher points out, historically innovation has been fueled by people like Musk, not government actors. Innovators are often maligned for their success, despite spearheading the very initiatives those on the left often urge governments to take on. The key difference, of course, is that the entrepreneurs take risks with their own resources and at their own consequence, while governments take action at the expense of taxpayers and often at the cost of personal freedoms. What's critical is that Musk wasn't reacting to government or demanding a certain number of electric vehicles by a certain year or, as California enacted last year, a complete phase-out of traditional gasoline-powered vehicles by 2035. Instead, Musk created Tesla because he had an idea he believed would benefit and appeal to consumers. And luckily for him, the market responded enthusiastically and Tesla became a household name in less than two decades. Daniel Butcher says Musk is a pioneer, and he took a risk that others were not willing to take on, creating jobs, improving society, spearheading vital technological de- developments and research in the process, and he was never success or he was successful rather because his approach was one that government will never be able to replicate. An approach of creating based on ambition, curiosity, and responding to the demands of the market rather than a mandate or policy. Pretty interesting stuff. I I have some mixed feelings on Elon Musk. And, and look, part of this goes to my weekly conversations with Eric Peters, who's pointed out that, yes, Musk has, has done some very cool and innovative things, but he's also collected a lot of government subsidies along the way. And that doesn't mean, therefore, everything he's done is, is worthless, but it's, it's a warning that, you know, if government has subsidized electric vehicles or EVs, and uh, Musk, maybe he would have been a chump to, to leave those, those subsidies on the table. The only problem that I see is it, it just it encourages more bad behavior of people with their hand out to government. Yes, subsidize us. Help us. So that's the downside. But the upside, and this is a pretty big one, is uh, Musk has also, he's been red-pilled. Meaning he sees the reality uh, a little more clearly than a lot of people at uh, the big business with big government level are seeing things. They just see, look, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. We're just going to keep it uh, happy. And, and I think one of the best things I've seen from him is his defiance of the shutdowns in California earlier this, this last year. Do you remember this? 
Musk told the officials in, I forget which county it is in which he was operating, but he basically told him, look, my plant is going to reopen, and if you're going to come in here and arrest anybody for being here at work when you're telling us all businesses need to be closed, you know, because of COVID, he says, come arrest me, because I will be right there on the line working alongside these people, and this was my decision. And not surprisingly, the, the county said, well, you know, we're going to make some exceptions, you know, after the fact. He called their bluff. And then, taking it one step further, Musk announced he is moving his his company. I believe he's going to Texas. And I kind of like that from the standpoint of, uh, I think it's good. When, when it's state authorities or local authorities that decide, you know, they're going to they're gonna throw their weight around and say, well, you know, what, what can you do for us? I love to see a company that has the, the conviction to say it's going to be inconvenient, it's going to be expensive, but in the long run it would be better for us to just take our business elsewhere. Some years ago, this was back when Steve Jobs was still alive. This is before he passed away. Um, Apple was being questioned by, uh, I don't remember if it was the, the city council. It was, uh, I, I want to say it was something bigger than just Cupertino, uh, California. But there, there in, uh, in that uh, Silicon Valley area, there was, there was a city government that, uh, you know, Apple wanted to build a bigger facility. And the city was asking, I, I couldn't believe I'm seeing elected leaders sit there and ask, well, what are you going to do for us? And the Apple representatives, and, and this was, was at the behest of Jobs, it may have been Jobs himself, said, well, maybe what we should do instead is consider just taking our, our operations elsewhere. Oh, you should have seen how quickly the tune changed. Oh, no, 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 we don't want that. You know, just, but, you know, when, when, when they're in that position of, uh, you know, the Godfather, what's, what's a nice business you got here? Be a shame if something happened to it. At least Apple had the... Uh, had the wisdom to recognize that, uh, look, we're the ones in the driver's seat here. You don't have to sit here and try to intimidate us into, uh, well, you know, what are you going to give us in terms of infrastructure, free free Wi-Fi for everybody? I don't know. I have great admiration for Elon Musk. Yes, he has some flaws, but we need more innovators like him. Maybe you're one of them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.